Welcome back, listeners. We hope everyone had a fantastic Easter weekend. Breeding season is in full swing, and we thought it was perfect timing to talk about one of the most legendary breeding programs in the Western industry. We had the chance to talk with Billy Myers of Myers Performance Horses on basically everything that goes into having a top program. From the history of Frenchman's Guy and Myers Ranch, to broodmare and stallion selection, two-year-old sales and the future of the industry, we truly touched base on just about every topic there is. In fact, we talked about so many different things that we decided to break this into two episodes for you. As always, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in each episode. We are excited about our lineup of future guests. Make sure to subscribe to The Money Barrel wherever you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. And if you wouldn't mind leaving us a review, we would appreciate it. If you want extended content on most of our episodes, plus bonus episodes throughout the year, including one coming up, all things vet related, make sure to download the Patreon app and subscribe to The Money Barrel for just $5 a month. Our supporters help keep this adventure going. Part one with Billy Myers is brought to you by BarrelRacing.com. Visit BarrelRacing.com today and use code MONEYBARREL15 at checkout for your discount exclusive to Money Barrel listeners. Stay tuned at the commercial break to learn more. All right, Billy, glad to have you. This is The Money Barrel. Today, we're going to kind of do a horse program 101 um, with Billy Myers of the Myers Ranch and just talk about all things. I mean, you guys are in every aspect of the industry, breeding, raising, training, sales, and all of that. So thanks for joining me today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. It just worked out that uh, Billy's in the middle of the South Dakota blizzard, so he had time and breeding season to talk. Um, so hopefully that doesn't get too bad, but let's, let's just kind of start at the very beginning. I mean, I know your parents, um, Deb and Bill started Myers and what all of us know is Myers Ranch probably before you were even born, but, um, just give us some insight on like where you remember the program starting and kind of all the background on it. Like I remember the beginning of the program was mostly mom running barrels and dad training, all different kinds of horses from snaffle-bit horses to reining horses to roping horses to barrel horses. And that was when I was still probably like, you know, five or six, like the first kind of memories I have of that. And uh, back then they used to have a stud named Tiger Frost and he was more of a cutting stud and they kind of just focused more on the performance horse side of things and they had a race background. So you know, they were just horse trainers when it was all said and done. Both mom and dad, both. Mom was more of a professional barrel racer, and I'd say Bill was more of a professional horse trainer, and we were just kids. We were we were professional stall trainers, honestly. <laughs> we were stall cleaners. When it's all... Stall cleaners. Yeah, it, professionals. Did, did their parents, like, grow up in the horse thing? Like, how did they get into the, the horse training side of things? So my dad's... Um, father actually passed away when he was 14 and he was raised by my um his uh, my great uncle his uncle and he's the one that he was a he was like an old school cowboy he worked for the diamond a diamond a cattle company out of nevada south dakota like he was one of the old school like buckaroo type cowboys and that's who taught bill all of the things he knows about horsemanship horses so on and so forth so that was rolled over from dad mom grew up in 
a sale barn type family. My grandpa used to run every about major sale barn in South Dakota when it was all said and done. And my mom used to go pen back and run the clerk, clerk, clerk block. So nobody really came from like a full background of horses. We, we all kind of came from a background of ag, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then it just kind of became what it became. Like mom loved running barrels and was good at it. was handy. And Bill liked training horses. They started on the racetrack originally and then moved more into the performance horse side of things. And when did like the breeding in like, and I know you said you guys had another stud already, but like, when did, when did that become a part of it instead of just training? Um, the breeding really became a part of it. I think mostly when we got Frenchman's guy and we did have that tiger frost stud as well. But then in the meantime of that too, was like, we were partners on a stud with Mick and Perry strain named Flyma bars. And he was a race stud. So the actual breeding thing, I wouldn't say necessarily became a thing and really took off until Frenchman's guy really got popular. We always had a stud or two that we would breed to some friends, horses and some stuff like that. But focusing on like an actual Myers performance horses based breeding program didn't really come along until Frenchman's guy was, you know, older and popular. What drove him to become popular? I knew you, I know your mom ran barrels on him and um, they purchased him when he was young right when he was a weanling so it's really kind of a cool thing because like there's a family in south dakota that's the wiser family and they're they are where the frenchman name comes from Mm -hmm. so my mom had a mare named uh she named her casey i believe her original name was frenchman's lady love when it was also and then she would actually be a full sister to bozo and um pc frenchman's heyday Okay. And a seven eighths brother to Frenchman's guy. So that was the one that, like, that mare basically fed us when we were kids. My mom fed us road running barrels, like rodeo. And That's so, so cool. that was a bloodline that was very well believed in in our family. And that was how we ended up with Frenchman's guy because essentially they, they took a gamble based on bloodlines. And so they ended up bought him as a weanling and they paid a pretty good chunk of change for him as a weanling, like, you know, back, I think like $500 back then, but like for a weanling back then, that was a, a ton of money. Yeah. And my older brother, um, unfortunately knocked his eye out with a pitchfork. So I didn't know the, that's how that um, happened. Yep. So the whole thing with him was he was supposed to be a flip horse. Like they were going to buy him, train him, sell him. Like he was never going to be Frenchman's guy. Like they kicked him out of the pasture after that I got knocked out, like the way he looked. And then the rest is kind of history. That's crazy. So did did he stay around because he lost the eye and like they figured who's going to want to buy a one-eyed yearling? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Well, thank, like, thankfully divine intervention crap right there. Yeah, <laughs> our they whole kicked him out. They literally kicked him out in uh, Buffalo Gap, South Dakota in the National Grasslands, like out of sight, out of mind, like we're just going to not acknowledge this for a little while <laughs> our whole industry is thankful for your brother poking his eye out because i believe that he i believe he needs a statue of him holding a pitchfork on this ramp somewhere we can make that happen <laughs> yeah it needs to happen we, so when your mom like started training him i guess what was it that made your parents decide to keep him a stallion 
I think it was his confirmation in mind was what my dad my dad wanted to really keep him a stallion for mm-hmm. and he was gritty like but I mean my mom I don't remember I can't remember his exact accolades but she took him on the road for two years yeah and I know he was she made the circuit finals on him but like up here the amateur rodeos used to be way more profitable than the professional rodeos so she focused on the amateur rodeos so I think she won the amateur finals on him twice or something but you know his competitiveness his mind and his like full on and overall athletic ability was kind of what made us decide you know that this might be something for us in the future and is that when you guys started like acquiring these mares to kind of like start your own broodmare band or did you just start you know giving away breedings at first or like friends you know just trying to get him out there so we actually, yeah, we started acquiring some of our own mares and raising some of our own colts out of him. But then we used to do the whole good old school coin flip deal with dad's buddies. Like, you know, we, you know, you've got a mare you want to breed to him. You flip for flip a coin for the colt, and that was kind of how we started getting the numbers out there, if that makes sense. And then we had enough close friends that had good mares that would breed to him, and that was kind of what made him hit. But. When it was all said and done, you know, we started our own little smaller program that we were able to kind of just build up in the long run with the broodmares. Tell us a little bit about that, because I really feel like, I mean, the Myers broodmare band, I feel like you guys were like the first ones to have, you know, professional pictures of your broodmares and like broodmares of all different types of sizes and bloodlines and everything. I mean, like just such a diverse group of mares. And how did you decide, like, to start picking those mares to compliment him? Well, Dad was kind of the, you know, there's a, there was a guy named Vaughn Cook. He passed away um, two years ago. He used to run, or he used to own, like, Royal Vista Ranches and, mm-hmm. you know, Vista Equine in Colorado. He's actually who taught me pretty much everything about repro, but he was kind of the one that had suggested to Dad about crossing him on some run, more running bread type mares. And so then we kind of focused a little bit more on, you know, looking at going to the Heritage Place sale and looking at Mayor's race records as a way to kind of gauge what would cost best on our sets. So we would look at their race records, kind of bring them home, and then we would cross them on a stud, halter break them, train them. And if it was something that didn't really necessarily work for us, we tried on another stud of ours. And if that didn't work, then they would go down the road. So it was years and years and years of trial and error when it's all said and done. Yeah, because that right there, I mean, that's like a six-year process. Yep, like, like a six-year process when it's all said and done, too. Just to see if the mayor might work for, you know, your future. And we could all, you know, we always had a pretty good idea on the halter breaking. Like, we could always tell, like, if it was one that their mentality wasn't, you know, going to be a little more pushy, a little more, you know, like weird acting, throw themselves down type stuff. Or, like, if they were going to be a smart and more easily trainable horse, we would usually know that, like, you know, the mare was going to be something that crossed good on our studs. Okay. So, Thanks. essentially, the re- like, the simplest way of it is since we were so, all of us are so involved and hands-on, we were kind of getting to do case studies for ourselves on what worked best for our program. So, those first foals that you guys raised, like, how did you get them into the right hands to try to prove that Frenchman's guy was going to be a sire? So, like from, you know, from my mom riding him and being successful on the rodeos and from, you know, his uh, siblings also being successful, like Bozo being, you know, a 7 eighths brother, PC Frenchman's heyday being a 7 eighths brother. Like, we knew that we had a quality 
animal and we knew that his colts were going to be quality so the way that we kind of were very aggressive about that in the beginning was we you know we would go to our friends that had really good mares and we would give them breedings and because we knew that you know they were getting a free colt out of the deal but we were going to end up getting the marketing on the back side of that from them riding the horse essentially so that was kind of what we did in the beginning was we gave a lot of stuff away to people that we knew were going to do stuff with them and they were going to get out in front of the public and it would directly bring attention back to us i mean that's a real that's like probably the smartest marketing plan you could have yeah and it's what i mean like you know it's difficult for anybody to like wrap their mind around giving something like that away like you know i'm giving away three thousand dollars i'm giving away fifteen thousand dollars but what it does for you in the long run is it it creates unlimited amounts of business because everybody saw that person win on a horse from your program Mm -hmm. and that's really the best marketing you can get so you can pay a million and a half ads advertisements here there and everywhere but seeing somebody win on your horses is the best ad or the best advertising marketing you're ever going to get. So you guys took those risks to start, kind of gave away some stuff, got them in the right hands, and I mean that really is what helped launch him into you know being the sire that he is today. Oh, absolutely, and you know the people that we you know chose to be partners with in those early days of it, like. You know, they, you know, Jordan Briggs being one of them, Tammy Seamus, you know, the people, they really, you know, elevated our, our program to a level that became, you know, what it is now. And we never would have been able to do that without those people. I mean, that's a thing, a really important thing to, you know, explain and tell people, especially, you know, people wanting to get into the, the stud game. Like, you might have to give away some stuff, get it to the better mares, get, get Colts on the ground and into the right hands and... I mean, look at what it can do for you. Well, I'll tell you the one thing that it really does, too, on the backside of it is it goes right back around to what we talked about earlier, which is it shows how much you believe in, in your horses. Mm-hmm. Like, if you are willing to give those horses away to people, you're standing by them fully that that is going to, you know, come back around one way or another. Because you know that that's the, you know, the prime athlete that it is like you're not doing that just out of the shits and giggles of it you're doing it because you know that that's an athlete that's going to go somewhere and you want to give it the best chance to have a career and in the long run that comes back to our program because we we did all the all the stuff to get it to that point yeah so it takes the team in the long run and part of the team is the trainer and the jockey and everything else along the lines to bring it all back to where it started with the program yeah makes sense so lots of giveaways. Giveaways are a very important thing. And I guess we should dive into it now, but like kind of walk us through your program because I love looking at like Facebook and seeing your mom's pictures of, you know, the foals born out in the pasture. And she's like, oh, the mayor won't let us close yet, but we should, we should be able to get there sometime soon. And like, it's just crazy to me to think of like, and we'll talk about your two-year-old program, but you know, the value of these things, but you guys really treat them as horses, like let them be horses. So walk us through kind of your, your approach to raising and breeding. Oh, as far as like the full overall, like ideals behind it. All of it. Tell us all of it. I mean, we're, we're trying to breed like the most versatile, long lasting horse we possibly can. So like we want athletic, we want quick feet, we want good minds, we want trainable. 
but we also want to build a horse that's going to last. So like we want some good bone and some structure to it. So when it's all said and done, like that's what our goal is. Where our goal, our goal as breeders is to create a, a better horse mm-hmm. for for the public to buy. And the process behind that, I guess, I mean, I don't know if that's really answering the question you're asking, but when it's all said and done, like that's what our goal is. So all of the little steps we take in the process of what we do with our breeding program is, is it going to fulfill our goal of creating a better horse? Like we're not trying to make a more marketable horse. We're trying to make a better horse. So then we end up in a situation where we do things a little bit different because we're trying to create what those things I was talking to you about earlier within our own little way of doing it that we have here. And that's just kind of the steps we take, if that makes sense. It's a little bit different than everybody else does it because we're not focusing on the marketing part of it. It does. And I want to dive in more because you and I have talked about that before, you know, just the difference in we'll get into the incentive side of it, but like, you know, incentive based breeding versus truly breeding to, like you said, make better horses. So what, I mean, do you guys focus mainly on confirmation? Obviously, you have the pedigrees behind you, but, like, what is your thoughts on, you know, when you create these matches to begin with? 500% confirmation. Confirmation. Yeah, like, that is like, I mean, bloodlines, you can make, you can take the bloodlines, and you, you're able to, like, make such educated decisions on what kind of confirmation you're going to get out of those bloodlines. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the biggest thing that, you know, papers really bring to the attention of people buying is like, it's not a name brand. Like that's literally so like telling you exactly what the quality of the horse has. So that's where, you know, from a breeder, breeder's perspective, you should be looking at it more from the sense of like, okay, you know, I know the horse A here, his colts are better minded. He usually has a nice butt on him, good bone, good dispositions. And then I got this mare over here that might be a little bit crazier in the in the brain category. So we're going to go ahead and cross this stud on this mare to try to create a better horse out of that cross as opposed to a more marketable cross, if that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. a better horse is always going to be more marketable, and that's just what I stand by. Yeah, and that just makes sense. And, I mean, it almost sounds silly to, like, ask that because I feel like it should be kind of common sense. But then I, you know, you see some of these crosses and you're like... I don't know if that thing's going to be able to hold together or, you know, it's it's standing on no foot or whatever because it, you know, I feel like it just leads to being, you know, is it in all the incentives or, you know, whatever reason. I just don't feel like it's always matched up like that. Well, and it's just really hard, too, because, like, it should, you know, when you have good, good horses that are in incentives, then it's a win-win-win situation. And then, like, and there is not, a, you know, the, the crazy thing about it is, like, I told my parents this not very long ago. I was like, you know, when people started the barrel industry, the focus was creating better horses. And that's why you see the, the thing we have going on right now in the barrel industry where there's a million good studs. Mm-hmm. Like, that didn't happen by accident. That happened because the focus was creating better animals. So now we're in a position where people were breeding for the right reasons for so many years that there's so many good horses. And that's why you see the competition level going up ridiculously every year in barrels. And so it's just kind of interesting, but like 
what was happening 10 years ago is what brought us to the point we are now. And that's why there are so many good horses and out there, period, mares and studs. That's a good point. So we're in like such this weird little area. Like that's where the incentives kind of become valuable because now there's so many good horses. Like how do you market correctly, right? Mm-hmm. But then the other side of that too is then you get an incentive based decision making where you are breeding to studs because only because they're incentives because of marketability. So it's kind of like a win win lose lose situation when it's all said and done. That that's a great way to put it. But that's kind of the you know, going back to what we were talking about, like where we're at, what we're seeing with the amount of great stallions out there right now is a direct result of how people were breeding ten years ago. Haley Kinzel, Ivy Sabins, Sharon Hall, Kelly Yates, Shaley Lord, Andre Quelo. They don't have much in common, but neither do barrel racers of every level across the industry. What they all share, though, is a spot on BarrelRacing.com. BarrelRacing.com is a leading training platform for barrel racers of every level. From fundamental horsemanship and gear to colt starting and fine-tuning finished horses, BarrelRacing.com has everything you need to speed up your runs and troubleshoot your challenges. Now you can use promo code MONEYBARREL15 to save on your membership exclusively for the Money Barrel listeners. Visit BarrelRacing.com today. Let's go back to like when you guys obviously had Frenchman's Guy, but you've owned, I mean, multiple, multiple studs throughout um the lifespan, I guess, of Myers Ranch. But I also know that you've had like studs come and go. So what, when you started to bring in more studs to the picture, were you looking at studs similar to Frenchman's Guy just to pass on as bloodlines? Or did, were you looking for like something totally different to cross on different mares? Like how did you grow that program into multiple stallions? So we were trying, when we brought multiple stallions on, we were actually trying to find, you know, studs that would cross good on our Frenchman's Guy daughters. Okay. Because then you end up getting in the dilemma when you are keeping everything by your Frenchman's Guy studs, then you have a bunch of Frenchman's Guy sons and a bunch of Frenchman's Guy daughters that you kept back for good genetics. So we ended up going with those other studs to try, you know, as a way to cross on our Frenchman's Guy daughters to keep our program going. Makes that sense. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does to kind of create that next generation. Yep. Like, so we just had to, I mean, we can't cross, you know, like, we can't cross I'm a special kind of guy back on Guy Champagne Girl. Like, we got to we gotta find some outcrosses there. So that was kind of where we brought in, you know, Hot Colors, however many years ago that was. And he was great for our program. Yeah. His... He crossed amazing on French and Sky Daughters. I saw so many, like, Hot Colors. It was more, more the end of his breeding career but I mean they really were like it was just like the race run they're so fast and then you know you could cross them on more of these Frenchman's guy mares and you just had you know the perfect combo like it worked out great it was kind of the perfect cross for us like that hot colors Frenchman's guy cross was amazing and when when you also had like Frenchman's guy sons what was like the deciding factor to keep that that 
horse a stud because obviously you guys how, how many horses do you breed a year roughly like how many cults did you go through to find you know when you kept a smooth guy or you know mr sassy frenchman like when how many cults did you go through to find those next generation studs man it feels like and this is like i don't get to make those decisions that's a bill myers decision all day long <laughs> like when he finds one that he likes like it stays it's all him. There's yeah, there's no questions asked and that's just how it works. Like he's he's got the eye for it. But like, you know, this the, I'm a special kind of guy. We his mom melt away. Mm-hmm. She was also a she was a special leader, daughter own daughter a special leader, I think. But we made the decision to keep him a stud based on his bottom side more than anything because she was a freaking nature mare. And she'd actually been run through the fence that summer by a mountain lion and broke her uh coffin bone. So that was the last cult she'd ever had. That's why we called him I'm a special kind of guy. And we decided to keep him a stud because we we loved his mom and her genetics. And, I mean, he's, he's a phenomenal put-together animal. So it was kind of a win-win situation there, too. But when it's all said and done, like, we don't, we just, it just kind of happens, you know? Yep. Sassy actually came from Lance Robinson. We, he, we bought him as a yearling. Oh, okay. Yep. And we kind of just thought that he would be a good addition because it is his bottom side as well to add to our to our program because we liked uh, Jess Sassney and what she's done in the race world. So as a stud owner, I mean, I guess your mom was probably like far ahead of the curve because since you picked Frenchman's Guy based on that mare she ran. But I mean, kind of from the beginning, did you also make sure to put like equal emphasis on the mayor power side of things? Like how do you view the mayor power side of things when obviously you also have a, you know, a big band of stallions? Ooh, I mean, we wouldn't have the stallions we wouldn't have without our mares. Like just what I just said right there was special. I mean, yeah. And we put the emphasis on him as a stallion because of what mayor he was out of. We, we really understand the importance of what a mare brings to the table when it comes to the genetics. And so uh, it's kind of crazy, but I mean, like our mare power, I would get 90% of the credit to when it's all said and done. I mean, that's pretty impressive. I, and I always like to ask that because, you know, people always talk about mare power. And I think especially in the barrel industry, it's a lot of people understand the importance of it. Um, but do you see sometimes that like, if the horse is really good, the mare gets all the credit. But if the horse doesn't turn out, it's the stud's fault. Oh, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I see that, and I'm like, yeah, but that's also not very fair. <laughs> well, you know, it's just totally because they just they got to have something to blame it on, right? And they're not going to blame it on their own mare, so it's got to be the stud. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> but it is what it is. And, like, I mean, that just goes back to, like, me and you have talked about this before. Any. There's always going to be people's negative biases to anything, and it is what it is. But mare power, mare power is the most important in the thing in the world when it comes down to it. Most of the time, when I look at studs, I look at what their bottom side is over their top side. Yeah, ninety percent of the time, I'd say honestly, especially in the barrel world, because there's a million Frenchman's guy and dash fame studs out there. I want to see what bottom sides on. Right. I mean that that just makes sense. Kind of what what sets it apart. Yep. And that is what sets it apart because you're dealing with the exact same genetics on the top. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you get a shipment of semen for me two days ago or today. It's still the same exact genetics. So what it really comes down to is how that mare molds those genetics with her own and creates whatever kind of 
athlete comes out of her. Do you guys focus more on, I know you have your broodmare band to like carry, but did you, have you started like incorporating more like embryo transfers? I know you're part of the select genes and the ICSI, um, thing with, what is her name? Oh, Paul Irish Whiskey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a Nosey's Dam, right? It is. It's Nosey's Dam. And then uh, that Presley Smith has uh, one buckskin out of Smooth Guy right now. Out of her and by Smooth Guy, she's running. can't remember the name of that horse, but she's been winning. She won fourth on fourth on him at Austin a couple weeks ago. and. Yeah, so you're you're in all aspects of that. Do you guys try to find, like, some, like, higher performance mares to, like, also buy embryos out of? Or do you more so focus on, like, the mares at home that can carry? Oh, no. We've, uh, you know, I mean, like, we've, you know, we used to, and I'd say up until a couple of years ago, we'd always try to buy two embryos out of good, you know, NFR mares or some mares that we really liked that we saw at the fraternities. Like, so kind of, you know, what Mel's doing with her select genes deal, like, we've been... You know, a lot of people have been doing that for a long time. It's a good deal. And it keeps, it helps your program in the long run. Like, it brings some new genetics in, brings some proven genetics in. You might have to pay a little bit better for it, but you're getting the top of the line. Like, I guess the last one we did it was would have been evening traffic. Okay. So that would have been, you know, the mom to Michelle Darling's martini and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So we did, I think, one on special tour, one on sassy, one on... Uh, Frenchman's guy and one on Smooth guy. I think we did one on each of them. Oh, cool! And they're all they're all here now, and I think they sold a couple of them. And yeah, so we used to do that with uh, quite a bit. We haven't so much more as as of lately, but yeah, I mean that's something that we we very much so believe in. And you know, with the ICSI procedure and having Frenchman's guy as, as a candidate for that, like it gives us this opportunity to at least keep his genetics alive as well by doing the exit procedure with those mares and him yeah that's a great point um especially you know and even like a smooth guy like be able to extend that as long as as long as hrha allows i don't know what the rules are but yeah and like you know i mean the thing with smooth guy is he was so you know so popular when he was alive that like we never really got to save much frozen on him so the exit really becomes valuable with him okay and that's what's really cool about it. Yeah, be able to cross it on so much. Yeah, because that's, you know, and that's the hardest part with that is, you know, like, where we're at now is so, with Smooth, we're in a really weird spot with him because it's like, well, he passed away. Well, now his colts are starting to hit, and we don't really have that much on it. So if Ixie takes off, we're lucky there, and if not, it just is what it is, and his legacy is in his colts. Right, makes sense. So and that's what- kind of the... What do you think about that as far as, like, I'm getting way off base on what I was going to plan on talking about, but, like, the ICSI and cloning and, like, but also genetic diversity and, you know, keeping legacies going. Like, what's kind of your thoughts on, on the future of that type of science? The future of the barrel industry? Barrel industry, breeding, I mean, whatever, just kind of, like, improving those horses. But, you know, when we have access to cloning and ICSI, but, you know, also adding new bloodlines in, like, how do you find that balance? Well, so I'm just, I'll just give you, like, my personal opinion on it, and then we can, you can go from there with it. With the, I think that if all of that stuff, anything scientific, that if you can do it, and it's used for the right reasons, mm-hmm. I think it's a good thing. Like, cloning, I have my opinions on, and... My opinions on it are just, you know, like, every horse has a legacy, and I feel like their legacy should be respected, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
And so it's not ever going to be, we've had enough full siblings to know that, you know, they're not all the same. Like what happens in their natural environment also causes, you know, personal issues in them and stuff too. Right. I'm not a big fan of it. And that's really what it comes down to. Just because I feel like a horse's legacy is its legacy. Now in like bucking stock and stuff like that, I think that's sweet. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's something that it's like, well, you know, here it is. But as far as breeding stock goes, it's a little hard for me to comprehend, if that makes sense. It it does. And then, you know, like, I mean, I get the point of ICSI, trying to extend that as well. But at some point, that will run out versus, you know, if you're cloning, you're just keeping it going. You know, it's like, it's such a, it's such a happy medium on both sides because you look at what's happened in the thoroughbred industry right and they don't allow artificial insemination they don't allow anything but live cover and a stud's only allowed to live cover two mares a day and so you know the the price of those horses is unbelievable but is it unbelievable because of the market they're in which is the race industry or because of the fact that they haven't overpopulated the market like that's where it gets difficult to kind of decide what you know where if it's good it's bad but i mean at this point like there's a shortage of horses especially in the road horse industry so we got to keep up with that right yeah and that's kind of where the ICSI comes in i mean when they can't find reset mares they can't find you know places that can do it they can do the transfers like because they're so busy there's obviously a huge demand for horses right now mm-hmm. and if that's what it takes to keep up with the demand that's what it takes to keep up with the demand i don't think it's turned into a puppy milling type situation because the quality of animals going out is astronomically getting better like we're not dealing with garbage animals anymore like we're dealing with some really very high quality horses and that's what people are paying the money for the ICSI and the rest of it so it's really adding to the quality side of the gene pool if that makes any sense and keeping a lot of those you know older maternal sides alive that are kind of starting to slip off papers at the moment so i think you know that's where i really see the value in the ICSI is like being able to keep maternal genetics alive and, and adding more instead of you know one embryo transfer a year you know you might get multiple foals out of one exactly and if you have a mare that you know you put 15 years into building that thing up and you can get six colts a year out of it hell yeah you know what i mean like that's what you that's rewarding to yourself like your hard work paid off right there yeah and that's something that's pretty amazing like oh you know it's so hard for me to like say what my thoughts are on all of it because there's so many pros and cons to all of it it just kind of depends on subjectively like what a person wants to use it for right and you know that's there's just it's such a good it really is such a good thing though for you know keeping the genetics of like those old school bloodlines that they were the foundation to what horses are now like being able to have some of those foundation bloodlines that you can still pull off of and get some babies where a 30 year old mare doesn't have to carry it that's awesome yeah that makes sense and it's just it's wild to see i mean and you've you guys have really probably seen like I feel like in the last, you know, 10 years, the breeding, at least in the barrel side, has gotten so specific. Um, and I know you're seeing it start to change in the rope horse side. Like, so are you just seeing, you know, more and more people on both sides just want, you know, elite caliber animals because of the money that's available to win? I think it's like the money that's available to them. But I think also like 
people are understanding that it takes an elite caliber animal to be competitive now. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily just like the money to be won. Like it's their competitive side is driving them to win the money, but they can't win the money if they're not on a full blown equine athlete. Yeah. Like the, the level of competition just gotten unbelievable. You know, I I was listening to your podcast with Chelsea on the score, um, and I I thought it was interesting how you said something like when you guys started the two-year-old sale, like, you were really, you guys were just breeding performance horses. Like, it wasn't necessarily directed at the barrel racers. The barrel racers just took to it. Like, is that kind of how it went? You know, you guys weren't really, like, aiming to make these, like, super barrel horses, but we took to it quicker than, like, the ro- the ropers did? Or kind of how did they get so, like, prominent in the barrel horse side of things? Well, I think it was more like, they, had, you know, between uh, SX Frenchman's Peach and SX Frenchman's Vanilla, like, the barrel racers were looking for him as barrel horses. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, those two horses right there, like, blew everybody out of the water, you know, they, they had to pay attention to Frenchman's guy. So, like, the program was kind of like, you know, that was just where they, the attention was, if that makes sense. Yeah. Our sale itself, like, we just did, like, I don't know why it really took off. I mean, the only thing I can really think of is, like, we were kind of the first ones that started offering, like, you know, really broke two-year-olds. And, like, people knew what kind of handle my, my dad my dad had his own reputation as a horse trainer before he became bill myers my myers performance horses so i think his reputation as a horse trainer and then you know we started it with a fulton so it used to be the myers and fulton sale so you know bill and brian's horseman integrity is really what made the sale you know what i'm saying yeah and it was, we still like back then we sold a lot of rope horses okay like, like i mean we would still you know like we just had a performance horse sale and then you know it's crazy like we would keep a couple and like rope on them and sell them as rope horses like as three and four year olds but then you know like i think it really comes down to like our program is why the sale was so successful because of the lack of or because you like you take so many variables out of that horse's life when you know it comes from this program that was halter broke this exact way started this exact way rode this exact way until it's two-year-old year you're more buying, you know, the full product as opposed to just the horse. And what led your dad and, um, like, Brian to come up with the two-year-old sale? Because I wanted to talk about that. I mean, you guys really were the first to have, you know, this two-year-old focus program instead of either just standing the studs and trying to get somebody else to, you know, get them to that point or keeping them all the way through competition. Like, what was it about that broke two-year-old? Is that just because, you know, they were horse trainers and horsemen and that's what they wanted to focus on? That's it. I mean, I hate to, I wish it was a cooler story than that, but I mean, like, they were horsemen. They wanted to do, they knew they did a good job at what they did. And it, so when it first started, like, do you know who Jim Hunt is by any chance? I've heard the name. So we used, us and Fulton's both used to be guest consigners on Hunt Sale. Okay. And we would sell horses on there. And it usually worked out to where we would have one that would top the sale. So then Brian and Bill kind of got together and decided that they wanted to have their own sale. But they didn't want to sell weanlings and yearlings. They wanted to you know, sell some horses that they had trained and rode. And get them out in the public so that was and i think that was when i was like a fresh 
my first year we had the sale was when I was either an eighth grader or a freshman in high school. And the sale went great. Like, you know, it was scary. Like, everybody was just like, what's going to happen? Because nobody had ever really offered that. And it went awesome. Like, we had, you know, a pretty realistically high average at that time. And it just kind of kept getting better and better from there because the word got out. Yeah. Now, the decision to do it, I think, literally just because, like, they wanted to. Like, my dad still rides those Colts to this day. He's yeah. 70 years old. Yeah, doesn't he? I, mean, I think just like at the pink buckle sale, like he's the one that wrote him through, right? Like, yep, every one of them. That's awesome. Yep, like, I mean, he doesn't, like, that's, you know, that's his bread and butter. Like, he, that's what he loves doing. So it kind of just more became a, like, since we can do it, we're going to try it. And then it worked. And I mean, still to this day, I wouldn't say we sell barrel horses. Like, the market on the barrel horses is what people buy from us, but we're just training performance horses. I love it. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to hear more from Billy Myers, you're in luck. We're currently working to finish up part two of this episode. We're also working on a bonus episode for those who subscribe to The Money Barrel on the Patreon app or at patreon.com with Littleton equine veterinarian, Dr. French. Dr. French spent a lot of time with Kayla going over questions that our followers asked, and the lessons learned are endless. A big thank you to our partners at BarrelRacing.com. BarrelRacing.com has everything you need to speed up your runs and troubleshoot your challenges. Visit BarrelRacing.com today and use code MONEYBARREL15 for your discount. That's BarrelRacing.com. All right, everyone, run fast, be safe, and we'll see you soon.